Let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, this morning we, we acknowledge our, our complete dependence upon you. Lord, we need um, each of us to hear from you this morning, to give us strength, to strengthen our faith, our conviction, to help us live the life that you would have us live, a life that's worthy of the calling that we've received, that's worthy of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Lord, it's not, uh, it's not my words that are important this morning, but it's your words um, spoken into each of our hearts. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would that you would prepare each of our hearts to hear, to listen, to hear those words you have specially for us, and then to take those words and live them out according to your leading as we go out into this dark world. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you were asked to describe the state of the church in the country where you came from, in one word, what would you say? It's not really a fair question. I mean, you, you can't answer that. <laughs> the church is very complex. There's a lot of variety. You can't pay, paint it all with one brush. But I was thinking about this question with regard to the church in the United States where I come from. And the first word that came to my mind was soft. Thinking in terms of, of the level of commitment in the church. Or maybe self-focused or self-absorbed if I was allowed to use a compound word. Those came to mind. And that's, that's not to say that that's characteristic of every church in the United States. There would be many churches where those words would not, you would not even think of using those words in describing the church. And, and also, it's not to say that there aren't committed followers of Christ in the United States. There are many. But there are more, I think, who are more focused on what they can receive from the church. You know, maybe an ecstatic experience in worship. Maybe an entertaining message from the pulpit. Just an opportunity for social interaction with, with others, with friends, and so on. More focused on what they can receive than what they can give. More focused on, on being served than serving. People often have a consumer mentality about church. Jumping from one church to another based on where they feel, which one they feel has more to offer to them. Rather than looking for opportunities to serve and to give, using the gifts that God has given them for the good of the church. And to reach out into the dark world around them. Many would point to the fact that the church in the U.S. 
had, has not had to endure significant persecution as a big reason for its softness. And, and that would certainly be true. Where there's intense persecution, those who are not really committed tend to be weeded out. And that hasn't been the experience of the church in the U.S. But anyway, I don't tend, intend to analyze this in detail this morning. I could offer many other reasons um, for the words that I chose for the church. But I only use this, the church in the U.S. as an example. And I, and I consider myself part of that, by the way. I am affected by that. I myself am often soft and self-absorbed, self-focused. You know, and I think really the church is in the same state in much of the world, maybe even worse. You know, maybe some places the first word that came to your mind is dead, lifeless. But this morning, I just bring this up because as I was reflecting on the passage that we're going to look at this morning, another reason for this softness and lack of commitment jumped out at me. It's one reason of many, but I think it's a significant reason, one that we have some control over. And the reason is that when we preach and teach about what it means to be a follower of Christ, our message is often not consistent with Jesus' own message, his own teaching in this regard. So, so kind of starting with the conclusion, I think we have a tendency when introducing people to Christ and even in our teaching and preaching within the church, within the context of the church, to put great emphasis on Christ as our Savior, which he is, and that cannot be overemphasized. We need a Savior, and he is that Savior. But we put great emphasis on that, but at the same time we leave out or de-emphasize the fact that Christ is Lord, our Lord. We invite people to receive Christ as their Savior, but leave out or minimize the fact that in doing so, we also receive him as our Lord, which he is also. He's both. (laughs) He's not one or the other. He's both. So in our passage this morning, if anything, Jesus does exactly the opposite of this. And let's take a look. If you have your Bibles with you, open to Luke chapter 9. And we're going to start in verse 57. It says, As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. 
So in this, in this passage, Luke just very briefly records three individual encounters with Christ. In each case, the person involved expresses a desire or at least a willingness to follow Christ, to follow Jesus, and become a disciple of his. But each encounter ends with a rebuff, in a sense, from Jesus. If you're like me, your initial reaction when reading of these encounters is to ask, is Jesus being reasonable? Why is he so quick to throw cold water in the faces of these men who say they want to follow him? If he questions their level of commitment, shouldn't he be glad just to let them follow and gradually work toward a deeper level of commitment somewhere down the road? Is this the same Jesus who said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest? Well, obviously it is the same Jesus, and he is being consistent. And I think we make the effort, if we make the effort this morning to put ourselves in the place of each of these men to the extent that we can and hear the words of Jesus spoken to them as if they were spoken to us, which maybe they are, then we'll gain some insight into what is required for us to live as true and faithful followers of Jesus Christ. I'd like to try to help us do, a, do that just a bit this morning and, and just pull one principle from each of these encounters to consider and reflect upon, asking ourselves whether Jesus, shining his light into our heart of hearts, would find us lacking in some regard as a truth, true and faithful follower of his. So the first principle that I pulled out of this is maybe an obvious one, that we need to count the cost. So back to Luke 9, 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So this man comes to Jesus with great enthusiasm, saying he will follow him wherever he goes, wherever he leads. But instead of receiving him joyfully and welcoming him with open arms, Jesus dampens his enthusiasm by describing what it will cost this man to follow him. In this case, emphasizing the lack of basic creature comforts he'll have along the path as he follows. We aren't told what it was that Jesus perceived in the man's heart to cause him to reply as he did. Perhaps he saw him as that, that seed that falls on the rocky soil, which, because the soil is shallow, grows up quickly. But then when it's exposed to the elements, it quickly withers because it has no root. We aren't even told how the man responds after he hears Jesus' words to him. Apparently that isn't important, at least in the record of this encounter. I'm sure it was important to him. (laughs) Obviously it was. But perhaps because the point of the account is really in Jesus' response, that's what we're supposed to reflect upon. What clearly stands out is that there's a cost involved in following Jesus and that it's important that we honestly consider that cost at the outset at the very beginning. 
Jesus expands on this further with some teaching that is recorded in a later passage in Luke. This is in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. It says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does, does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. So if we don't count the cost up front with sober consideration, we may end up playing the fool defeated, and ultimately totally useless in the work of the kingdom of God, like the salt described in verses 34 to 35. But what is the cost? What price do we pay when we decide to follow Jesus? From the Luke 14 passage we just read, we see that one price we all pay is that everyone and everything, even our very life, takes a back seat to Jesus in the work of his kingdom. Remember verse 26 there. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And of course he's not calling us to hate our father and mother and sister and brothers. But in relation to following him, we put all of that aside and follow where he leads. And then verse 33 says in the same way, if any of you, any of you who does not give up, give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. The truth is many of us think that we're making a great sacrifice by giving up a couple of precious hours of our day on the weekend and coming to church on Sunday. But Jesus wants all of us, all of the time. Pastor Rick, in his, his message last week, he emphasized this. He pointed out that, that all of our time, all of our talents, all of our treasures belong to him and are to be used at his discretion and direction. Wilbur Reese wrote this. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. 
not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough of him to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of God, a pound of the eternal, excuse me, in a paper sack, please. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Does that reflect our attitude sometimes? What about verse 27 in chapter 14? Have you given serious thought to what it means to carry your cross? We're called to do that multiple times. For me, the key to this is found in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus himself asked the Father whether the cup representing God's wrath could be taken from him. But then immediately followed that with, but not my will, but yours be done. For me, carrying the cross means subjecting my will to the will of the Father and saying, thy will be done in my life, wherever that leads, whatever you would have me do, wherever you would have me go. This, of course, leads to other costs of following Christ. Just as Jesus' decision to submit to the Father's will led him ultimately to the cross, so too it is a certainty that if we follow Christ, we will share in his sufferings. There are many passages that speak of this. One one that I'll just look at briefly this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 4. Starting in verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for the judgment to begin with the family of God, and it begins with us. What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. To wrap up this section with just a a bit of a clarification, I don't mean to imply that in all of this, Jesus' message is count the cost, weigh it it against the benefits, (laughs) and then then decide. Whatever you decide, it's, it's your decision. But I think really his message is count the cost and then follow me. But the count the cost part is important that we do that from the beginning. Have you truly considered the cost of following Jesus and then said, I put my trust in you fully. Your will be done in my life wherever it leads.
The uh, second principle, which we've already gotten, gotten into a bit, is pay the price. That is, commit yourself to the work of the kingdom. Let's go back to Luke 9 and look at the second encounter, starting in verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In this case, Jesus calls the man to follow him rather than the other way around. Once again, we don't know what it, what it was that Jesus perceived in the man's heart. We don't know the exact circumstances, not even sure from our vantage point what the man means by, let me go and bury my father. Is his father dead already and he wants to go bury him? Does he want to go back until his father dies and then follow Jesus? We don't know. And again, we don't know. We're not told what the man did in the end. But regardless, Jesus makes it very clear that for anyone who would follow him, the work of the kingdom of God must come first. What does it mean to commit ourselves to the work of the kingdom? That's a hard question to answer, but one thing that came to my mind as I was considering that is, is it means living lives that are worthy of the kingdom of God, worthy of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Lives characterized by righteousness and holiness. Philippians 1, 27 to 29 says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to see you or only hear about, it, hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. So note that when we do this, there's also a cost involved. We'll face opposition and we'll suffer for Christ. The second thing that came to mind, what it means to commit ourselves to the work of the kingdom, is the obvious. It means to test, testifying to the good news of Jesus Christ holding out the word of hope that we've been given as a gift to those who are perishing. I'll turn briefly to 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. It says, so do, not, so do not be ashamed to testify about our, about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed as a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Again, suffering is involved as we follow Christ. Again, we do this recognizing that we're going to pay a price for it. For Paul, that price was his very life in the end. 
At the very least, we should be prepared to appear the fool in the eyes of the world as we follow Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But we know that God turns the table on the wisdom of the world in the end. Verse 25 in 1 Corinthians 1 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So have you truly committed yourself to the work of God's kingdom? Are you willing to pay the price wherever that would lead you? So back to Luke chapter 9, the third principle that I pulled out was don't look back, keep your hands to the plow. So let's look at that uh, third encounter, encounter starting in verse 61. It says, still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So in this case, the man says he will follow Jesus, but puts a condition on it. The condition at first glance seems reasonable, so Jesus' reply is a bit shocking. But once again, we don't know what Jesus perceived that was in this man's heart. And maybe we don't know exactly what he meant by saying goodbye to his, his family, what that involved, how much time, whatever. But I want to focus on Jesus' reply, which is the point again. It's a strong statement as a warning to those of us who have put our hands to the plow, that is, those of us who have decided to follow Christ. It says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You remember the salt in Luke 14? That if it's not salty, it's, it's useless and can only be thrown out. This is stated in a different way in Hebrews 10. In uh, Hebrews 10, starting in verse 35. It says, So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly re rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and, not, and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. So how do we keep from shrinking back? So a couple months ago when I preached, I preached from Hebrews 12, and I think it has a lot to do with just this. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. 
If we think back to Luke 9, put your hands to the plow. If you want to plow a straight furrow, you need to keep your, your eyes fixed on a, on a point in the distance. Otherwise, your furrow is going to be crooked. And for us, that our eyes are to be fixed on Jesus. And then second, we need to understand the value of the hardship that we'll endure when we follow him. Verse 7 in in Hebrews 12, Endure hardship as a discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined for a little, us for a little while for our good. Excuse me, for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So do we want that, that righteousness? And peace, the peace that can only come from our Father. That's where it comes from, largely, is when we endure suffering on his behalf. And then third, we need to remember the prize. You know, it said Jesus for Jesus, it was for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and so on. 1 Corinthians 9 Verse 24 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. Kind of an appropriate description when the Olympic Games is starting up, right? But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So in summary, Jesus calls out to each of us saying, follow me. But he asks us to follow having having truly counted the cost and saying to him, nevertheless, despite the cost, I will follow you. He calls us to commit ourselves fully to the work of the kingdom without reservation. And he calls us to keep our hands to the plow, never looking back, never giving up. It's no coincidence that our passage this morning comes just before the passage about about Jesus sending out the 72 in Luke 10. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and every place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. The harvest is still plentiful, and the workers are still far too few. Therefore, he calls each of us to go out and labor faithfully 
in his harvest field. A, a brief illustration. This is a story that I, that I came across a while back. Um, I'm not sure the actual source of it, so if anybody, if it sounds familiar to anyone and you know, know the source, please let me know. I, I came across it in a, in a book, and I remember, the bo- I remember who the author was, but I haven't been able to figure out who the book was, and I know it had, it had a footnote uh, explaining where it came from. But it's a story about a man named Camidus, who was a commander in a special forces unit called the Thundering Legion in the days of the Roman Empire. In the, in the course of this man's life, Camidus, he was introduced to Christ and eventually put his trust in him. And, and having put his trust in Christ, he went out as a laborer in the, har- in the harvest field. He shared his faith with those soldiers, those 39 soldiers in his regiment, and ultimately all of them also put their faith in Christ. But as they began to live out and share their faith, um, this was at a time when the Roman emperor was becoming more insistent that that he himself should be worshipped as a god. And so eventually, they were forced to make a choice. They were asked to sacrifice to idols and refused. And eventually, they they were told they had a choice, either renounce their faith in Christ or face the ultimate punishment. Well, they refused to renounce their faith. So in the end, they were led out onto a frozen lake and stripped of all their clothes and then were loosely tied with a rope around each of their necks that went, that was strung from man to man in a circle. And they were told that, uh, that they would be left there to freeze to death, but if, any, if at any time they changed their mind, all they had to do was slip that rope off their neck and walk to the shore where the guard was, and they would be allowed to enter into a steaming hot bath that was there waiting for them. As the guard returned to his post to warm himself by the fire, he heard the men begin to chant, Forty soldiers! We stand strong in the strength of Christ and Christ alone. And this chant continued until darkness fell and the temperatures plummeted and then gradually became weaker and faded altogether. And then in the middle of the night, one of the soldiers decided this was too great a price to pay. He lifted the rope off of his neck. He stumbled to the shore And in a barely audible voice, he he renounced his faith in Christ and then entered that warm bath. After this, as the guard returned to his post, he heard the chant begin again and gradually become louder and stronger. Thirty-nine soldiers, we stand strong in the strength of Christ and Christ alone. The guard was moved by this display of faith and commitment to consider the one who provoked such conviction and commitment from them, to consider Jesus. Convinced in his heart, he slowly made his way, made his way out to the middle of the lake, stripped off his own clothes. He put the rope around his neck, and he shouted, I am a Christian. 
And together they began the chant again with renewed strength. Forty soldiers, we stand strong in the strength of Christ and Christ alone. In the morning, 40 soldiers lay dead on the frozen surface of the lake. Now, we're probably not going to be asked to make that ultimate sacrifice. But are we ready to say to Jesus, I put my trust in you. I'll follow you wherever you lead. Have you truly counted the cost of following Jesus? Have you said to him, I place my trust fully in you. Wherever you lead, I will follow. Whatever the cost, not my will, but yours be done. Have you committed yourself to the work of the kingdom, putting others before yourself and holding out the word of life, that precious word of life to those who are perishing, shining your light in the dark places around you? And finally, are your hands steady on the plow with your eyes fixed on Jesus? Or are you continually looking back at every trial that you face, every hardship that you encounter? Do you really trust that his good purpose for each of us and for this world is going to win out, surely win out in the end? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize that we've been, we've been given much. Forgive us for when we take this great gift that we've received for granted. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we shrink back from following you. Help us, Lord, in our weakness to be strong in your strength. Help us to be lights in this dark world. Help us to be faithful laborers in your harvest field, going wherever you would have us go, doing whatever you would have us do, trusting you fully for, what, for the result. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.